I wanted to share something with you this morning. It's called the um, Cherry Tree um, Hearings. It's a transcript of the hearings that took place uh, between George Washington and his father. So are you ready? You ready? Nod your head. Here we go. George, I have a very serious question to ask you, and I want you to promise you'll answer truthfully. Will you? Yes, Father. Good. Now here's a question. Did you cut down my cherry tree? No, Father. You're quite sure? Yes, Father. Well, I'm afraid I'm very disappointed in you, George. Why, Father? Because 12 people saw you cut down my cherry tree with your little hatchet. Oh. In view of that, would you like to change your previous answer, George? No, Father. I believe the answer I gave you was legally accurate. You, you still insist that you're telling the truth? Well, in my own mind, I was telling you the truth, Father. What is that supposed to mean? Well, you asked me if I had cut down the tree. In my own mind, it seemed to me that cutting is something one does with a knife or a sickle. In my own mind, it seemed that since I used my little hatchet, the relationship I had with the tree, while perhaps inappropriate, was not a cutting relationship. I would call it a chopping relationship. Very well, I'll give you another chance. George, listen very carefully. Did you chop down my cherry tree? No, Father. No? No? Why do you still say no? Because, Father, I cannot tell a lie. And in my own mind, I did not chop down your cherry tree. Well, what did you do then? I chopped it into two pieces and one fell to the ground. So you chopped it down. No, I merely chopped it. I did not cause the other piece to fall down. The force of gravity caused it to fall down. And I have no control over the force of gravity, so the tree, though segmented, would presumably still be up and not down, except for the force of gravity. George, I am losing patience with you, but I'm going to give you one last chance to tell the truth. Did you take your little hatchet and chop my cherry tree? Which action on your part, combined with the force of gravity, caused the tree to fall down? No, Father. No! How can it still be no? Well, I say no because of my legendary regard for the truth, Father. What is that object at which I am pointing my little finger? That's the stump of the cherry tree you cut down. And isn't the stump a part of the tree, Father? Well, yeah. In fact, isn't the stump the most important part of the tree, Father, since without a stump there would be no tree? Yeah, I guess so. Yet the stump is still standing. So when you asked me if I chopped down the tree, my mind said to me, George, you must tell the truth. And the truthful answer is no. You chopped, gravity caused part of the tree to fall down. Yet the most important part of the tree is still standing. I see. All I can suppose, Father, is that those 12 people whose exaggerated claims allege they saw me cut down the entire tree were motivated not by a search for the truth, but by some personal vendetta against me, perhaps because I am from Virginia. George, you're very crafty. Well, thank you, Father. Have you thought about what you'd like to be when you grow up? Well, yes, Father. I believe I would like to be a politician. <laughs> For the past few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of developing a Christian worldview. And one of the questions we explored was this, how can I know what is true? And the reason I wanted to share this story is that this is a great example of two people who have their own version of the truth. So what is the truth? And this is such an important question because our worldview is a set of beliefs that we build our life on. And we've looked at some other really important questions. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, where did I come from? And then last week, why is the world such a mess? And today, we're going to answer really that previous question. Okay, if the world is such a mess, what is the solution to the mess the world is in? 
And I want to do this. I want to point out some things that I believe will not solve the world's problems because they don't address the root cause of the world's problems. And the first is this, legislation. This week there's been an incredible amount of discussion in our country about what to do concerning gun violence. And that's been in the news repeatedly. And some people say, well, it, it has to start in Washington. We need new laws. Now listen, laws are important. We want to be a nation of laws. We want just laws and good laws. But laws don't fundamentally change the human heart. Think about this. Um, Israel, when they were going to leave the promise, they wouldn't leave their slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land, were given ten laws to live by. What are those called? Ten Commandments. Now, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, those Ten Commandments had morphed into over 600 commandments because religious leaders thought, you know what? We can do a better job of controlling human behavior if we just have more laws. That's similar to what's happened in our country. Now, here's another thing that people think sometimes will really deal with the mess the world is in, and it's education. Now, now hear me, church. Education is critically important. We need to really make sure that we're dealing with the issues of ignorance and apathy and, and illiteracy, but education in and of itself will not change the human heart. Think about this. There are international terrorists who are highly educated. Does that mean they can't do horrible things? Well, no. Or how about this? This is a very interesting observation. Um, people here in America have more information than ever before about sexually transmitted diseases, and yet they continue to rise. So education is clearly not the one bullet that's going to change everything. Now here's another um, viewpoint that people have, compensation. This is the idea, listen, if we want to change the world, we've got to eliminate poverty, we've got to redistribute wealth. But here's the problem with that. The human heart is greedy. Now think about what happens when there's a natural disaster. And I've seen this firsthand in Haiti. All this aid pours in, and where does it end up? On the black market, confiscated by government officials. It doesn't get to the people who need the help. Why is that? Because people want the stuff for themselves. And here's yet another answer, innovation. People sometimes think, you know what? If we just have more of an emphasis on science and technology, it'll solve all the problems of the world. I read an article this week. It was really fascinating. It's about people that are freezing their stem cells because they hope that if they get a disease down the road, that science and technology will have a way to cure that disease and it will involve unfreezing their stem cells so they can be treated. Now here's the thing, technology can do some really, really good things. Think about the World Wide Web. I mean, what an opportunity to disseminate helpful information. But what's the flip side? It's a nightmare for disseminating harmful information, like pornography. And so we see that these four things, uh, legislation, education, compensation, innovation, are not enough to solve the world's problems. And, and let me just use this analogy. Um, how many of you have ever had weeds in your yard? Okay. Um, if I have a weed in my yard and I want to get rid of the weed, what would you think if I went over and just took a pair of scissors and cut the top of the weed off? What's going to happen? Yeah, it's going to grow back. I mean, that's just a waste of time. What do I need to do to get rid of the weed? I got to pull it up by the, by the roots. The root cause of the mess in our world, and we saw it last week, is the condition of the human heart. So where's the answer going to be found? Same place, in the transformation of the human heart. And see, that's God's solution, and this is on your outline. God's solution is a transformation of the human heart. 
I want to show you some verses where God is talking about what he's going to do inside the hearts of humans. And this is after his people have royally messed up their lives. But God still loves them. And this is what he says in the book of Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this is how the passage continues. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. And notice this beautiful description of what God has planned. You will be my people, and I'll be your God. Now, think about this. Do Christians have problems? We started the service, right? How many of you have? We, Christians have problems just like everybody else, but we have a different solution because we know that the solution is a transformation of what? The transformation of our heart. And you know, this question about, you know, what's the solution really ties together a number of things we've been talking about. For example, the question, where did I come from? Well, you were made in God's image. Well, why is the world a mess? Because sin has damaged the image of God in you. Well, what's the solution? Well, Jesus came to our world to restore that image, to make you like himself. And that's what God is up to. If you're a believer this morning, remember this. God is much more concerned about your character than your comfort. And you know, when we lose sight of that, we can get really frustrated by the circumstances in our lives. You know, I, I've heard preachers, you know, talk about um, the fact that God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy, and, you know, it's this prosperity gospel. And, and I've heard pastors say, well, Jesus came to give you an abundant life. Well, yeah, he did. But he also said this, in this world you will have, you'll have trouble. It's going to be hard. And here's the thing, there are Christians who expect their lives to be easy, and they think that Jesus, when they decide to follow him, is going to lead them to easy street. And that's not true. Now, let me share with you a, a passage from um, a Christian author, and he said this, and this is a really powerful statement. Listen carefully, church. He says, a quick review of many popular Christian books reveal that many believers have abandoned living for God's great purposes and settled for personal fulfillment and emotional stability. That's narcissism, not discipleship. Jesus did not die on a cross so that we could live comfortable, well-adjusted lives. His purpose is far greater. He wants to make us like himself. And notice what he says. That is our greatest privilege, our immediate responsibility, and our ultimate destiny. And here's the thing. I have seen this play out in the lives of people I love this week. I mean, I've talked to people who have lost their jobs. I've talked to people that are fighting cancer, people that are battling back from strokes. And you know what? Here, here's the common thread. God is developing my faith. He is making me stronger. He is giving me an opportunity to point people to Jesus. See, God really does have a purpose for our problems, and it is to change our hearts and to make us more like Christ. The question is, how does that happen? And that's what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to point out some really important things. So um, here we go. Here's the first thing. The transformation of the human heart requires the power of God. Requires the power of God. Listen, you're not going to become like Jesus through self-help or wishful thinking or watching Oprah every day. It requires the power of God. And that's what the Bible says. Check out this verse, Romans 1.16. Paul, a follower of Jesus, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it is... The power of God for the salvation. And, and here's a two-word phrase to substitute for salvation, complete rescue. It is the power of God for the complete rescue of everyone who believes. Now, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. 
And you've heard me say this, you can't really appreciate how good the good news is unless you understand how bad the bad news is. And, and just really quickly, here's the bad news. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Our sins separate us from a holy God. And this God who is holy is also just, so he has to punish our sins. That punishment is to die and to be separated from him for how long? Forever. And we can't do anything to save ourselves. That's the bad news. But here's the incredibly good news. God really, really loves you. And that's why Jesus leaves his home in heaven. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, comes to our world, lives a perfect life, and that qualifies him to die in our place. And that's why Jesus voluntarily goes to a cross. And that's why God's willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. And Jesus not only dies, what happens three days later? He comes back to life and he says, hey, come follow me. I want to give you a new purpose, a new life. But realize this, you will have trouble in this world. But take courage. I've overcome this world. You know, there are so many people in our world that struggle with addictions. And, and I was talking with some people this week that are um, going through the 12 steps of AA. Some of you are familiar with those 12 steps. And you know, this is something that I, I really am intrigued by. I know that it was based on, on biblical truth, but some of the parallels are really striking. Because the first step in AA, and some of you know this, um, say this, that um, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, and we looked at it last week. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Can you hear this sense of helplessness? I just don't have the power to become the person that God wants me to be. And here's the second step in AA. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And notice what the scripture says in terms of where the power comes from. For God is working in you, Christian, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And then the third step is this. We made the decision to turn our lives and our will over to the care of God. Well, notice what we're being encouraged to do in this verse. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Turn your life, your will, over to the care of God. And church family, the thing is that, you know, I don't, um, I don't know all of your stories. I know there are people in our church family that have struggled with addiction. There are people we love who struggle with addiction. Could be to alcohol, to drugs, pornography, all kinds of things. But regardless of what your story or your experience is, we all follow the same path towards spiritual transformation. And it's this, we have to come to a point where we are willing to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. We have to put our lives in his hands. And you know, this is, this is something that Jesus talked to his disciples about before he went to the cross. He said, you trust in God, trust also in me. And that brings us to this, this second step in terms of the transformation process. The transformation of the human heart requires what? A commitment to Christ. It requires the power of God, but it requires a commitment to Christ as well. Look at this Bible verse. It says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew said, I'll think about it. What did Matthew do? He got up and followed them. Now, this is a remarkable story. Tax collectors were not well respected. They were, you know, cheating their countrymen out of their hard-earned money. And if Matthew had a, you know, a firm of tax collectors, he might have had some guys named Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe um, that were working with him. 
But here's the thing. When, when Jesus says to Matthew, hey, come and follow me. Now, he may have known something about Jesus at that time. But do you think Matthew had any idea what was going to unfold in his life? No, of course not. But here's the thing. He made a choice. You know, I don't know where all the steps are taking me, but this step, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's true for you and me. There comes a point in our life where we have to say, look, here's the line of faith. I'm stepping across it. I'm going to follow Jesus. I don't know where he's taking me, but I'm going to trust him with my life. And here's why that is so important. Your life, my life, our lives are shaped by the commitments that we make and that we keep. And there's no way to get around that. You know, some people are committed to making a name for themselves. Some people are committed to making a lot of money. Some people are committed to having a life that is comfortable and easy. That's what they're pursuing. That's what they're committed to. But Christians are people who are committed to making a difference in this world with their lives. One of the things that I've heard as people have been talking this week about, you know, our nation, you know, America's a mess. What's, what's causing this? One of the things that I've heard is the absence of fathers. Have you heard that? And the reality is that in 40% of American homes, there is no dad. 70% of the men who are serving long-term prison sentences grew up without a father involved in their life. So guys, those of you who are dads and granddads, let me just encourage you, step into the lives of your wives, your children, your grandchildren. Because listen, the, the best thing you can do for your family is to deepen your commitment to Christ. It really is, because it changes you. When, you. when you're a follower of Jesus and you're growing in that commitment, you're going to pray more and serve more, and, and you're going you're to have more influence in the lives of your kids, your wife, your, your grandchildren. And what would happen, really, what would happen if men, we were serious about this, it would start a chain reaction that would move us toward God's purposes for our lives and would help alleviate a lot of the mess that we're experiencing right now. Now, here's another way that transformation occurs. The transformation of the human heart requires the knowledge and application of God's truth. Knowledge and application of God's truth. This is a verse from John chapter 8. It says this, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, what Jesus is getting at is this. You're not just listening to me. You're doing what I say. That's what it means to abide in the word of Jesus. And what's the consequence? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. Now, where does God reveal truth to us? One of the primary sources is this book, and it's called the Holy Bible. And you know what Bible stands for? B-I-B-L-E? Basic instructions before leaving earth. I really like that. Because this book teaches us how to live in this broken, fallen world. And that's why God says, hey, I'm going to give you a snapshot of the life of my son. He does that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the four Gospels. And here's the thing. We need to, to read the words of Jesus. We need to know how he lived his life. But we need to go beyond that. We need to abide in his word, which means we have to take what Jesus said and put it into practice. Now here's a verse that reminds us of that written by Jesus' half-brother James. He said, um, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're what? You're just fooling yourself. Now let me ask you this. Um, do you think that it's easy to do what Jesus says? When Jesus says, forgive those who have hurt you, is that easy or hard? That's hard. It's really hard. And the fact is, we've all been hurt by other people, and sometimes we have a really, really hard time 
forgiving and letting it go. And we deal with the anger in our hearts and the bitterness, and Jesus says, no, no, if you're going to follow me, you need to forgive in the same way that I've forgiven you. And, and church, I was thinking about it this week. You know, things have happened to all of us. And it would be a true statement to say that in some ways we're a product of the past. But here's the good news. We don't have to be prisoners of the past. We don't. Why? Because Jesus said, hey, I came here on a mission to heal the brokenhearted and set the prisoners free. But if you want that freedom, you've got to abide in my word, which means you've got to know what I said and you've got to actually do it. And that's what causes the transformation of our hearts. And that brings us to another way that we're transformed. Number four, the transformation of the human heart takes what? Takes a lot of time. Takes a lot of time. Listen, there are no shortcuts on the road to spiritual maturity. No shortcuts. It takes time. When God wants to make a mushroom, he does it overnight. When he wants to grow an oak tree, it takes 100 years. And so often what we're concerned about is I want to hurry up and grow in my faith. And God says, listen, it's not a matter of how fast you grow. It's a matter of how strong you grow. And that's going to take some time. But here's the thing that we can focus on. You know, no matter how fast or slowly we perceive we're moving, realize this. When God starts working in your life, he is never going to stop. Ever. And that's what Paul tells us in Philippians. He says, I am certain. I am convinced that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Now, we know that spiritual growth takes time, but why? And just quickly, a couple of reasons. One is because we have to relearn lessons. Think about Israel. God teaches them, you need to trust me. You need to obey me. And they go, okay, got it. And then what happens? They totally disobey God. And then it's another lap around the desert because they have to relearn the lesson. And here's another thing. It's not just we have to relearn. We have to unlearn. We have to learn to replace the thoughts and the habits that we previously had. Now, when it comes to change in your life, remember this. God is never in a hurry but he's always on time. He's always on time. And listen, sometimes God takes a long period of time to prepare people for his calling on their life. Think about Moses. You know, Moses was how old when he was called to lead Israel? He was 80 years old. For his whole life, God had been preparing him. Listen, for the assignments that God gives to you and me, he prepares us over time. So here's the thing. You know, don't get discouraged. Be persistent. Be patient. Keep moving toward that goal one step at a time. Remember what um, Charles Spurgeon said. He said it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. So keep moving. Keep moving forward to that goal that God has for you to be like Jesus. Now here's one final observation about God changing us. Number five, the transformation of the human heart is seen in a growing love for God and a growing love for people. A love for God and a love for people. Now, that makes sense, right? Jesus said, what's the most important thing? Love God, love people. But how can you tell that God is actually transforming your heart? How can you tell that you're more like Jesus this year than you were last year? Well, I want to walk you through that because there's a way that we can look at our hearts. And God gave us this really helpful verse, and you might write it down if you're not familiar with it, Galatians 5.22. It often is called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the characteristics that are produced in someone's life when they have a relationship with Jesus and they're growing in that relationship. Now, I have a great prop this morning. Um, this was actually made by Laura Texter, and we have it over here in the building. But this is a list of what? 
the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics that are formed in us as we follow Jesus. So what I'm going to do really, really fast this morning, I'm going to walk you through each one. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think, okay, um, is that an area where I'm making some progress or where I need to say, hey, God, boy, I really, really need your help with this one. Okay, so the first one is, and I'll put these on the screen so you can see them. The first one's love. Love. Are you growing in love for God and other people? Now, how can you tell? And I would say, by your willingness to give. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Gave his one and only son. When you love God, you give to God. You give your financial resources to his work in this world. You give financial resources to help others because you love them. You give your time. You give your talents. You know, one way to tell that you're growing is you're eager to give. You're eager to serve. When, when there's an appeal on a Sunday morning, hey, we need help in Upward. We need help in Awana. Man, you, oh, good. I can do that. That's an evidence that your heart is being transformed. Now, here's another. Joy. How many of you would like to be more joyful? Okay. I would too, and here's where it comes from. Gratitude. The more grateful you are, the more joy you experience. And foundationally, God wants us to be grateful for his grace in our lives. And here's why that's so important. When you're going through a really tough time, are you able to say, God, this is painful, but thank you for your grace. Thank you that this problem has a purpose. Because as you do that, you're going to grow and you're going to experience more and more of God's joy. Here's the next thing. Peace. Peace. Um, This is in very short supply in our world. And... I was reading the other day that the number one um, psychological issue in America is anxiety. So how is it that we can have more peace? Two things, depend on God more, trust God more. So how can you tell that you're depending on God more? And it's very simple, how much do you pray? Really? Because if you don't pray, you're saying, I got this, God. I don't need to talk to you about this. The more you pray, the more you're depending on God. And the other thing is this, the more you trust God, I mean, really trust God, the less you will worry because you really believe that God has got you in his hands. Oh, here's another one, patience. And I often joke with people in my family, okay, who's praying for patience? Because when you pray for patience, God says, okay, okay, I'll bring you into a situation that tries your patience. I'll put people in your life that will test your patience. But here's the reality. God wants us to be patient with each other because he is patient with us. And here's the thing. Think about this. Do you have a long fuse (laughs) or short fuse? And as your fuse get longer, I mean, are you a more patient person? And here's something that I was thinking about this week, because this is an area where I need to continue to grow. Um, I can be really hard on myself. I can be very impatient with myself. And you know what happens? That means I'm impatient with my wife. And I'm impatient with the people around me. So if I can learn to be more patient with myself, it will affect other people. And then I can say, hey, Chris, am I growing? Right? And, and honestly, as you work through this, that would be a good thing to do, to talk about this this afternoon and this week. Okay, here's another one. That one's getting a little too convicting. Let's go to kindness. All right, what is kindness? Well, that's a person who is tenderhearted. You know, somebody who's, who's, um, who's kind is looking at somebody going, how could I make their life a little bit easier today? And think about this in terms of your own heart, and this is important when you're married. Do you have a more tender heart toward your spouse? Do you have a more tender heart toward your children? Do you have a more tender heart toward people? Because God wants you to change and grow in that area. Here's another one, goodness, goodness. And this has to do with our character. Are you making more good choices than bad choices? Are you doing more good things because of your love for God, your love for people? Here's another, faithfulness. And this is extremely practical. Are you getting better at keeping your promises and your commitments? Can people depend on you? When you say, hey, I'll be there, they show up. 
Are you growing in faithfulness? Here's another, gentleness. And this is really strength under control. A person who is gentle is not harsh with their words. Um, they're not harsh physically. A, a person who is, is gentle is considerate of the doubts and the fears of others. Are you becoming more gentle? And the last one is self-control, which is really self under God's control. Are you growing in your ability to resist temptation and consistently, more and more consistently, do what pleases God? Because that's evidence that you're living under the control of God's Spirit. And church, let me just close with this, with this thought. This week I was riding in the car with my wife, and we got to a red light, and she just showed me her phone. And on her phone was this meme, and the background was this face of a lion. Now, who do lions often symbolize? In church circles, anyway. Remember, if you don't know the answer, it's probably, it's Jesus, right? The Lion of Judah, right? So the background is a lion, and then there's text. And I read it one time, and I wasn't even trying to memorize it. It just stuck in my head. And here's what the text on the phone said, on the background of the face of a lion. The devil whispered in my ear, you cannot withstand the storm. I whispered in the devil's ear, I'm a child of God, a warrior of Christ. I am the storm. Now, church, think about that. God does not want us to retreat from the brokenness of this world. He wants us to do something about it. He wants us to engage. He wants us to advance. He wants us to fight evil and injustice and, and suffering in the world because we actually have the solution to the mess the world is in, and it is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why. The local church really is the hope of the world because of its people and because of its message. And I'll tell you this, I believe this with all my heart, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the complete rescue of everyone who believes. And church, I want you to, I want you to have that truth just go deep inside you this morning so that as we go through this week, we'll remember this. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change my heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change my marriage. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change my child or my grandchild. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change this church. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change this community. And listen carefully. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change the world. Pray with me this morning. God, help us to, to trust you. Help us to dream, God, that your power can really change our hearts and change this world. Lord, thank you for the people in our church family that, that really are taking this seriously. And they're trying their very best to change the world one person at a time, meeting one need at a time. God, thank you for the ways that you're enabling us to do that. And God, I pray this for the person who maybe for the first time is realizing, well, you talk about a commitment to, to Christ. I've never decided to follow him. Well, I pray today would be the day that that person makes the most important and the most courageous decision of their life. And listen, if that's you, if, if this morning you want a new life, a different life, if you want to decide to follow Jesus, then, then you don't have to stand up. You don't have to say anything out loud. You can just talk to God right now in your own words, in your own way. Say, God, I need you. I really need you. Look, I, God, I get it. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know his name is Jesus. So, God, would you please forgive me? I'm really sorry for my failure and my sin. I want to follow Jesus. I believe he died for me, that he rose and that he wants to give me a new life, and I don't have a clue, God, what that means in terms of where this is leading. 
But right here, right now, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. And Lord, that's where it all starts, with that commitment. And God, would you please, please help our church to grow in our commitment to follow you, to be more and more like Jesus, because that's what's going to change us, God. That's what's going to heal marriages. That's going to bring kids back to their parents and parents back to their kids. God, it's, it's what's going to enable us to, to deal with suffering and pressure and problems. So we pray, God, that you would pour out your power in our lives. And Lord, as we end this service and as we head out the door, God, please do this. Help us to, to leave this place encouraged and stronger because we've been with you. And help us to take this message of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear that there's a God who loves them, a God who wants to give a future. And God, thank you that we get to be the messengers that you send into the world. God, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would bring joy to your heart as we declare that Jesus, our Savior, he lives, he loves, and he's always here for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's please stand to our feet and praise God together.